Welcome to the Music Education Advocate Podcast, where we share stories and strategies to advance music education advocacy. I'm your host, Jasmine A, and welcome to the show today. We have James Doherty currently serving as the Arts Education and Digital Learning Specialist for Davidson County Schools in Lexington, North Carolina, and he is also the director for the Canon Music Camp at Appalachian State University. Hey, James. Hey, Jasmine A. How are you today? <laughs> I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for this opportunity. I'm excited to have you here today. Can you tell us who you are and what do you do? Well, as you said, I'm the arts education and, and a digital learning specialist for the school district here in Lexington in North Carolina. It's about halfway between Charlotte and Greensboro. Our district has about just under 18,000 students who attend one of 35 schools. I've been in this role for almost nine years, and for 21 years prior to that, I was practicing music educator at Central Davidson High School, teaching band and music theory, and assisted with the instruction at the middle school at least one period a day at Central Davidson Middle. In 2010, I completed the school administrator's licensure in addition to my bachelor's and master's degree, and I hold a school principal licensure as well. And if that wasn't enough, just a little bit more fun. I, as you mentioned, Canon Music Camp, this will be my 33rd year as the uh, a, a part of Canon Music Camp this summer. The camp is 55 years old this year, and I, I'm now the director. And if that wasn't enough fun, I, in the spare time that I've got, I'm the advocacy chair for NCMEA and the Southern Division president for NAFME. So a lot of fun things. <laughs> That's a lot of hats. Yeah, it's just <laughs> I- a couple. Just a couple. I love it. Okay. But I wanted to talk to you about the way that you have been able to advocate for federal funds to positively impact music education. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that's a a really great time of all these different things that I do together. In our district, we've been very fortunate that our leadership has been supportive of utilizing federal funds to support music and the arts for many years, but particularly when Title IV Part A came into focus, uh, the number one use of the funds in our district has probably been to support supplies and materials for music and arts students and teachers. And when I began my art specialist role about nine years ago, all of our elementary teachers were receiving $100 per teacher for the year for supplies and materials. Now keep in mind, we have 18 elementary schools. We had nine visual art, nine music, and nine physical education teachers that are paired together as an enrichment team at every school. And all of those teachers were serving at least two schools. Some were serving three schools. So as you can imagine, $100 didn't go very far when it's, that's not $100 per school that was per teacher. That was the budget they had, and maybe a little bit more from like the school or something like that, or PTO, but pretty much that's what they got from the district. Now, just shy of a decade later, we've definitely improved because of Title IV. As recent as this year, our elementary teachers are receiving $600 per school, not per teacher. And that's a huge and very significant change. And they can use those funds for supplies, materials, curriculum, things like that. And as a side note, we now have 13 teachers for each of these content areas rather than nine. So we've grown in that area as well. I don't know that I can attribute the personnel changes to Title IV or federal funds, but definitely there were some parallel things happening. 
And I'd point out that our teachers have voice and choice how to use these federal funds. You know, it's one thing for a district to allocate funding, but another if they allocate funds and then require some sort of those funds to be spent on a mandatory online curriculum or for the students to participate in an honors group or something like that. Title IV funds also support visual art, band, choir, and theater in our middle and high schools. And again, supplies and materials have been the biggest allocation to the teachers to allow them to get what's needed most in the hands of their students. And time after time when we do a needs assessment, materials and supplies are the number one thing that teachers ask about. The funds have also supported professional development days for arts education teachers where their substitute teacher is paid and they can come together as a true light content professional learning community and talk about things that impact them and their instruction and their role as opposed to learning very broadly uh, with other teachers in other content areas. We also bring in some content-specific training for the, the teachers where they need it, and they talk to us about where they need it. Along with that, we've been able to add and target some projects like supporting all-county performances, uh, district-wide visual art shows, and having Title IV funds support uh, these events so students don't have to pay a participation fee and that speaks to the equitable way that we want to try to do things now prior to the pandemic we were really grateful to focused on a newly created experience for middle and high school male or low voice singers that gave them uh, a one-day experience with a clinician to sing bond and make music together and have an informants at the end of the day the goal of that experience was to decrease attrition and retain male and low voice singers from middle to high school so that they felt like it was cool to continue to sing in high school and that they saw other students who looked like them and what they are aspiring to do and that that was important and uh, we were not able to do that through the pandemic but we're looking to pick that back up this fall so there were several things going on about how we use title four. Oh my gosh <laughs> That was so much in so little time. Okay, wait, we got to like go back and piece out some of this stuff. First of all, sure. to my listeners, that didn't just happen over one year. How long have you been doing this work for Title IV funds? It'll be nine years this fall. Okay, the first thing I want to talk about is you said you went from $100 per teacher? Mm-hmm to $600 per school, because we got to remember most of those teachers, almost all of those teachers are teaching at multiple schools. Okay. Wow. Uh, And every one of those teachers has $600 per school. So that's $600 for music, $600 for visual arts, $600 for PE. And I'm sure there'll be a lot of listeners that'll be like, oh my gosh, this, you know, we did that a hundred years ago, but you know, when you, you move from a hundred dollars a school, $300 to support the arts and PE to $1,800, that's a big change. That's a big change. Yeah. yeah. And considering this was just nine years ago that you've been doing this work. So gradually you've been able to increase, but I could not imagine the impact that federal funds is providing for your teachers. Um, yeah, there's so much. <laughs> so I want to go back to something that you were talking about You said content training where the teachers would have input. How did you get their input and and what was that like? 
Well, sometimes it's they're just building relationships by being around them, their classrooms, their performances, and just watching what they need and, and learning what they need. Sometimes people don't tell you, they show you, and they show you by how they respond and how they how they teach, how they interact, what resources they use. But a lot of the information that I got to help drive decisions was just data that I would collect from like a Google survey or something. What, what do you like? What do you not like? What do you need? And um, But when you get down to it, when you're in your room and the door's closed and it's your planning time or you're at home and you get to reflect and think about what do I really need? If you can put it in a survey and you can write it down, a lot of people will give you much more detail. And yeah. the teachers have done that. And there were a few teachers that that kind of, especially post-pandemic, not only told me about what they needed, but they also talked about what they needed personally. You know, I'm feeling mm -hmm. this and I need that. And and that ties back into building relationships. And, um, you know, there may not be anything you can do about uh, the, those kind of needs, uh, personal needs, but you can listen. Yeah. And, uh, that's important. I think that speaks to what you said, yes, building relationships, but also creating a space for those teachers to know that they will be heard. You said people don't, sometimes people don't tell you, they show you, and you have shown that you are not only going to listen to what their needs are, but you're going to follow through to the best of your ability, um, which creates a, a safer place for those teachers to really ask for what they need. But oh, I, and, and I should throw in there that um, one of the things I did my first year when I was onboarding myself or making like an entry plan, a learning plan about how I was going to do the work for this arts role. And I'm not like really the arts. I'm not in charge of people like HR and I'm not really in charge of the budget either. I, I get to add influence. And that's kind of important to note. It's different than a lot of people that may serve a similar role. But I created a Google Calendar for the school district where uh, I gave access to all the arts teachers and they can put the things that they do, their art shows, their uh, concerts, their performances, uh, anything that they're doing on there. And um, it serves twofold, really. It, it, when you look at all that published, it's like, wow, nobody realized there were hundreds of arts events in a district this size every year to uh, the leadership and the Board of Education and other community members can see this calendar. And then three, the there's all this documentation you have to fill out with federal paperwork about, okay, you have to talk about what are you gonna do with the money? And then after you do it, you have to tell them what you did and, and provide documentation. So I use that uh, Google Calendar to provide documentation of the impact of the federal funds by just printing it out. It's so easy. You know, we can show that we impacted not only our students, but the community, especially Title I communities. You know, you can see how many performances uh, and, and activities were going on. So, so that was a, a, a simple thing that turned into be uh, impactful in a lot of ways. You know, you said something and I don't want you to don't want you to skip over it because I think it's really important. You said that your position might seem like you have access to the budget and, and administration over teachers. Talk to us more about what your position actually is and how did you get into this work? Well, if I were to to define it in a way that more broadly most teacher education folks in K-12 would understand it. I think my role is more like an instructional coach. 
um, that would be in a typical school. But, you know, we don't have a content specific director uh, or leader for the arts except me, but I don't have that title. So I do some of that work, but it's not at a recognized title kind of level. And, you know, you have to be okay with that because it's not all about titles. It's about how you can help other people. Now, when I got into the work, it was called an instructional program specialist, which basically meant you're a curriculum specialist. And uh, they paired the arts with what they called then distance learning and credit recovery for high school students. You know, I, I think other, you know, in the beginning of this, this interview, I sort of talked about all the different hats that I wear, but a lot of things come together to help you in different ways. And, you know, mm -hmm. having that school administration background kind of helps me navigate things in different ways. But uh, that's how it all started and came together. It was just uh, kind of a hodgepodge of things. And, um, you know, as you go along, you you develop skills that can help one group. And sometimes those skills help another group. And you just keep going from there. The way that you describe it is you are utilizing the experiences that you've had to kind of shape the the advocacy landscape of what you're doing going forward to help other people um, oh yeah yeah so like another example of that is I'm the lead manager uh, uh administrator for the canvas platform in the school district for everybody <laughs> so I handle all the help tickets and during the pandemic I had you know every every kid or teacher's question about canvas came to me and most of the time when people especially in the pandemic the, the help ticket would say it won't work won't upload question mark question mark question mark you know and so then it was like a problem solving uh, private detective game and that has nothing to do with music or advocacy or federal funds but in a weird sort of way it, it it's it's not a distraction the problem solving things that I've learned doing that really helped me continue to look at how do we do this this is not working you know how do we get more funding for this how do we make this work so it's, it teaches patience. It teaches, you know, all these competencies that are not music related, even for me as a person that's been in the, the job for a while. And yet you're utilizing all of these situations as a learning experience to, to move and propel music education and arts education in your district forward. So yeah. let me ask you, what are some obstacles that you've faced in advocating for federal funds? Obstacles. There are several. Oh, I did think of one thing. You were talking about how I got started in the work. Can I throw one more thing in there? Uh, about yeah, that? do it, do it. Um, my, my real connection, to, to since I got off track about non-music things, let me refocus myself here and actually <laughs> answer your question for, for music. I got started in the federal advocacy, federal funding and advocacy work uh, because of my role as NCMEA president North Carolina Music Educators, and my first National Assembly in Hilday. I was just in awe when I was at that first experience with NAFME, and I, I just, I had just started this job, and uh, I remember attending the National Assembly in Hilday, and the power of conversation that we had when we were in Washington with other leaders and with legislators, and about how we could make change just by talking, sitting down and having a calm conversation about this is who I am, this is what I do, this is what excites me or motivates me, and this is what really makes me excited about seeing children learn and hearing not only 
me, but colleagues and collegiates who were sharing that information and staffers and legislators writing notes down and, and wanting to hear stories about this. And then I heard people say, well, in our district, we've done this and it's because of this money. So my, my start came there really. And um, it really was about building relationships like I, I mentioned before. And um, have you heard of researcher James Comer? I don't think so. Tell me more. He, he, he's a great education researcher and uh, a, a really powerful um, teacher uh, who, unfortunately, she has passed now, but her name is Rita Pearson, and she has some TED Talks that you can find online. Yes, yes, and, yes. And, and, I know that uh, name. Oh, yeah. And Rita Pearson quoted uh, James Comer often in her TED Talks, and she talked about no significant learning can occur without a significant relationship. Amen. And that is powerful. And so in my getting started in all this, that that was the context that got me going to want to learn more. And, um, you know, there's all these laws and things that you have to do. And it's a pretty heavy lift. But uh, when you know that you're serving people and that you can support them through this federal fund work, uh, th that's that's where you want to just be there and help interpret and help open things up. So. So that's really how I got into the federal funds part. But you, you had just asked about obstacles, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. I'll, I'll get us back on track here. I didn't mean to, to get off track so much. Um, the biggest obstacle that I faced in learning all these processes and putting all this thing, all this information together about federal funds and how they're distributed from the federal level to the state level, and then the myriad of check and balances that are in place once you get the funds and you have to account for those funds. But it was probably without question having a seat at the table when the fun pie is sliced out for everybody. That's an obstacle. Because if you're not in the room when that happens, you don't get to eat from the pie. Yeah. And I had to figure that out. How do I get in the room and get in those spaces? And when I started this work, I didn't know much of anything. But uh, I had a great mentor, um, immediate supervisor, the assistant superintendent for curriculum, Dr. Coley. And uh, she talked to me about a, um, a needs assessment and how one works and how you put one together. Shared with me some ones she had done for Title I when she was an elementary director. And I started to realize the power of a tool that you can develop locally to collect data on what you want, what you think you want, and seeing how those things are asked for in financial support when the teachers ask and how they actually respond when they have to qualify and quantify their needs. Because it's one thing if you're a teacher to go in and say, I need help, I need this, I need that. But if you have to qualify and quantify it into data, it's a little different. It looks a little bit different. Now, you know, mo most music teachers are exceptionally passionate in their teaching and support for students, but we can't let our passion solely drive advocacy work. That That is critical to have. But when you combine advocacy with data, it's like, putting the Teflon on the frying pan. You know, it just makes it that much stronger because you take something important and something that's needed and you strengthen it beyond measure when you add data to your requests and your needs. So, so oh, well, I got a question for you. Uh, so if I'm a teacher that's listening to this right now or I'm uh -huh. um, a parent who's listening to this right now, what does data look like and how do I collect data 
That that's a great question, and I think there's been some really great uh, pioneering work from people after COVID about data. Um, I, I don't want to mention any names or people because for fear of leaving somebody important out. But <laughs> data collection is just really a matter of sitting down and putting down on paper or on, on a computer document, a Word document, what you have and what you need, and starting from there. How many? Uh, oboes do I have? How many violins do I have? How many sopranos do I have? How many do I need? Uh, when you start thinking about retention and recruitment, how many tuba players are in seventh and eighth grade? And two years down the road, how many tuba players will I have? Uh, gotcha. You know, and if if you have one that works, one that's in the corner, and one that was ran over, and you've got three middle school kids coming up to play tuba, you better get to work on that. That's a pretty important funding request, and those are expensive. So, you know, you got to start developing a plan about how I'm going to raise for those. And uh, anyways, it's really taking a look at what you got and what you need. That That's helpful to know um, because as an educator, when I heard data, I thought of test scores. I thought of uh, mm-hmm. the EOG and the POG, you know, data across various demographics and in my classroom as an elementary educator my air quotes data was not um, formalized as as those items were so this idea of quantifying i have these many instruments this many are broken um this many are functional and this many are going to be on their way out the door within the next two to three years. That's some long-term thinking that I would not have considered to be data collection, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and thinking about your class sizes for the students who are going to be coming up uh, into your classroom, that's helpful information on, by what I mean of, oh, okay, so this is what data is because in the education world, music, oftentimes, we as educators don't see ourselves fitting into this data conversation. Mm-hmm. But when you put it into those terms, that makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. So thanks for that clarification. Yeah. Well, and even more simplistic with that data about uh, retention rates, you know, mm-hmm. uh, retention rates in elementary school are um not often as much of a concern because generally speaking, most elementary students have music and art every day, but you can have some retention rates or or, uh, numbers in elementary school. Like if you're trying to build your ORF instrument collection and, you know, then you, you, you talk about uh, some of my students uh, are from a different socioeconomic background who may not have these experiences outside of this class. So we need these, these additional materials to support their learning and understanding. And if, if we don't have more, then uh, they may not actually get to play and I have to look at it. And what experience is better for a, a child than actually hands-on, you know, doing, not, not just talking about this is what it sounds like or seeing a recording, but actually getting those, those mallets in your hand and participating. So that, that makes a big deal. Um, you know, I'm sorry, I have to pause right there. <laughs> Because that, to me, makes a lot of sense. This this concept and, and putting into a concise uh, 
I guess, proposal, but saying essentially, would you rather them just look at it and say, oh, that's nice? Or would you rather have their hands on experience of this musical instrument that, I mean, of course, everybody would say hands on. Nobody wants to look at the car. You want to drive the car. Nobody wants to look at the instrument. And then see how you can't play it because you, there's not enough to go around. Yeah. Yeah, so true. And, you know, we, we one of the big buzzwords right now in education is personalized learning. Well, you can't personalize yeah, learning to students if they don't get to, to do the thing that they're talking about. You know, it, it's very different to actually participate. And if you don't have the, the instruments and the, the things to help make that happen, it's just not going to work. So, um you know, you know as well as I do. If you put a recorder or mallets in an elementary student's hand, I mean, they are they're going to be happy, especially students who are who like to move around and whatnot. So, yeah. So, so that that was a big uh, obstacle for me. And I, I guess another one was, and I kind of mentioned to it, just like making sure that I was in the right room at the right time in the right space mm-hmm. to be with people that that make decisions and impact. Um, you know, a lot of times. You can be in a room with people that are not arts people, but they hear your voice and they remember that that's important later. And if you're not in the room, then nobody thinks about what you're doing. Uh, I I often think about, um, you know, no school hires a football coach to uh, to be the band director and uh, um, they don't hire a counselor to fundraise for English. They hire all these people to be specialty uh, folks in in their area. But um, music educators have to be aware of everything that's happening in the school, not just in their space. And so I kind of brought up the the counselor and the football coach as to say, yeah, you got to be a master of your own content but you can't just stay in your music room with the door shut and not know anything about legislation that's going on at the state level, federal level, uh, board policies locally that can impact you, a graduation requirement, a change in the schedule at the school that could negatively impact your students. You gotta be aware of all these things and and make sure that you're there so you can contribute. I I remember when I was a band director, um, one of, my strongest principles taught me that for any problem that I had when I came to him, I should bring at least two solutions that I liked. And I should share the problem and share both solutions. And he said, essentially, I'll pick the solution because I may not have time for a solution. And he said, I may pick the one you like the most and I may not, but if you chose both solutions, you're going to win either way. I, well, I like this. I like this. So you come with the problem, but two solutions, and then that helps drive that you're hopefully going to win out with whatever happens. Yeah, because, you know, most of the time when you go to a principal or an administrator with an issue, they hear problems, yeah. problems, problems, problems. Nobody brings solutions. Everybody wants to tell you what's wrong. So if you go in there and say, hey, I got this problem, you know, <laughs> you can probably already see the tension <laughs> on their face, like, oh, no, what do you want? You know, but if you say, but I could solve it like this or like this, do you have a preference or or would you add anything to that? Oh, all I got to do is choose. That doesn't cost me money or that's a little bit of, okay, let's do that, you know, and, and so that goes, that goes really well. And, um, um, and you know, I heard you say this and it was either in a podcast or a presentation I was with you. Uh, 
uh, attending with you at some point. But I guess the last obstacle that, that I reflected on um, was just remembering that uh, somebody's no to my request doesn't mean that they dislike me. It doesn't mean they dislike arts or music or the work that I'm doing or me as a person. You know, I got to put on my tough skin and my leather. I got to be a little bit of a, a lizard at that point and have tough, hard skin, you know. And <laughs> we just got to remember what it really means is I'm not on the same page with that person at the same time. And I've got to have another path or detour around the obstacle that you mentioned to get to the place that I want to be or where I want the people that I support to be. And, and I think that's one of the hardest things. And that goes all the way back to the building relationships uh, piece we yeah. talked about. Yeah. You know, I have, I, I've noticed something in the conversations that we've been having in, in this time that we started out with obstacles and your focus was not on the obstacle, but how to go around it. You just said it. You were like, I'm going to figure out another path. And right. In the question of what are some obstacles that you face, you didn't talk about the obstacle necessarily as much as you talked about how you address them. I think that I kind of want to shift a little bit and talk about what just happened, because I think as advocates and and for our listeners, this is a, a great learning and teaching moment and that obstacles can be huge and right in front of our face, right? But making sure we're entering this work with a mindset of if there is a problem, how can we find two solutions? And you didn't talk about the obstacles as much. I don't even know what the obstacles were, but I know that if there was one, you'd have, okay, so here's the problem. Let me think of two solutions. If they give me a no, that just simply means that I'm not on the same page as they they are. Essentially what you're saying is Obstacles are going to come. That's mm-hmm. a given. Mm-hmm. But how we respond to those obstacles, that's the advocacy work. Yeah, um, that's, that's the beauty of it. Yeah, and that's the beauty of it. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. I heard the other day, being happy isn't about getting everything you want. It's learning how to deal with life when things don't go your way. I think it takes a mindset change, right? You're still committed to it, but you recognize that obstacles will happen and you accept that. Um, what are some tips that you might suggest to an educator who's trying to navigate federal funding for their students? Well, above all else, build relationships. That's to me, that's the key. And, and you've got to build those relationships prior to making any big requests. Like, you know, I mentioned my principal before, before I got to the point that I could go in with my problem into two solutions, some of that conversation had been, how can I help you build your vision for the school and the culture and climate of the school? How do you see the music program fitting into that? Um, Educating yourself on local and state politics, not because you're this party or that party, or you believe this, or you don't believe that but understanding what the issues are so you can be informed and and know who the decision makers are um, at the local, state, and national level, even in your building. In this elementary school that where my office is, something done, 
you better know the bookkeeper and you better know the custodian. They're some yeah. of the leaders in the school because if you don't yeah. have a relationship with them, you're not getting anywhere. And uh, yeah. if, if they like you and the cafeteria manager, if she likes you, well, you, you can have a very successful career <laughs> in a short amount of time because those people make the world go around. Bus drivers. Yes. That's another yes. group of people. So, you know, key decision makers aren't always in the Capitol or in Washington, but, uh, you, you know, they can be right around us. But back to the, you know, topic at hand with federal funds, at, at if you want to get involved in this work and you, you don't know how to do it and you want to be involved in shaping and influencing how you can get money and supporting your program, you got to figure out who manages the money in the school yeah. district. It's not really a school decision. It's more of a district decision. And for here in North Carolina, most of those people are called federal programs coordinators, but it could be a different name depending on where, where you are, or, or it could be a sub job of somebody else's job. So you have to dig a little bit to find out who handled it and just ask some questions. Probably you could find that out by talking to somebody in a finance department too, because they're going to know uh, who handles federal funds. But when you talk to them, before you ask for money, you, you talk to that federal funds person and you say, hey, I'd love to be a part with helping with the local needs assessment, or do you need somebody to help collect the data, or do you need anybody to help write the narratives for the music or art portion of the grant request? And I mean, that's a, that could be another podcast just talking about how different states do that work, and uh, they have a computer system, every state does, or, or some way they have to report back the information. But if you offer to help, and you're just building trust with that federal programs coordinator, that may or may not use you at first, but if you keep volunteering, they'll they'll remember your name. And, you know, along the way, you'll learn things, even if it's not about music, about how the process works. And you, you can't understand another space unless you go live in that space. Exactly. And I think this goes back to the many hats that you're wearing, um, because we as educators, music educators, are often in our own space. And when we start doing advocacy work, that means we got to leave that space. And yet we are not trained in how to, you know, federal funds and reporting. You were like, write a narrative. And I'm going, uh-oh, what would that narrative be? Well, there is no class to write that narrative. It's kind of an on-the-job learning. And if you ask the help, you can also ask, hey, can I just read over it? Can I look at it? Can I see it? And get previous narratives and start thinking about how you're putting music into that. How does music connect to all of the things that have been written and reported? Because there is a reporting process that every school district has to follow mm -hmm. if you're getting federal funds. Or even so, reading somebody's grant request, you know, how did they yeah. write? Like, even if you, even if it's out of your area, how did they ask for the money and how did they get it? I mean, it's fascinating to, to read some of it. Not that I go home and read grant requests all night because I don't, but, you know, I've, <laughs> I've read one or two, you know, whole right. library. Yeah. <laughs> they're, uh, but it's it's just important to see how other people approach the same kind of work. And you start seeing names that are similar and you start putting those connections together. I, I want our listeners to know that when you start navigating federal funds, you really don't know it all. And that's OK. Yeah. The whole point is that you know that you, by federal law, have access to this information. Right. This isn't top secret classified information. This is public information that you get to ask questions about and that you get to say, hey, how can I help shape how these funds are being spent? 
Yeah, I interrupted. No, and I was just going to say, and find a thought partner. If if there's nobody in your district that'll open up, then then call call somebody like Jasmine or or, yeah. or me, and just say, how'd you do this? And you know, just um, work through that process. Absolutely. So yeah, <laughs> that's what I get to do all day. Well, not all day, um, but yeah. If you need a thought partner, that's what my role is for is is to help people strategize on how to advocate for federal funding. So thanks for and that plug, James. Of course, and you know what we're doing when when we're doing that, we're going back to the number one thing I that you asked when you asked for tips, and that was build relationships. Because yeah. if you email or call Jasmine A, you get to know Jasmine A, and you'll have a great time doing it, and yes. you learn more. So you build and, a relationship and you further advocacy work. So it all goes together. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> of course. Um, so I I just want to ask you this question, and you might have shared a little bit because I I do think that there is something to be said about joy in doing this work. You've been doing this for almost a decade. Mm-hmm. Um what is your favorite part about doing this work and how does it kind of sustain you and continuing to do it? Well, by far my favorite part of this work is just seeing people happy and excited and the joy on their face and seeing kids when, when they get the things that this money provides, whether it's an instrument or materials or an experience, it's, that's just the best part. Um, a lot of people ask me, you know, why did you go to that job and why did you leave the classroom? You shouldn't have left, you know, you're, you, you don't you miss making music? Yeah, I do miss making music, but I kind of felt like at a point that I transitioned, I wanted to help people in a different way. And I felt like I was making an impact on the students I taught, but I, I wanted to see if I could impact students more broadly and more importantly, the adults, because, um, you know, uh, the the work in education is hard now and there needs to be somebody there that says you're doing well keep keep going and a, a cheerleader behind behind them and especially somebody that thinks that you get it i, I think one yeah. of the most unique sayings that i've heard from any of my educational leaders in my career has been people don't care what you know till they know that you care yep that is really the main thing is just seeing the energy that's manifested when, when people have these experiences and have these things and knowing you're not by yourself and there's somebody there for you helps a lot. Uh, <laughs> I was thinking, I have a cousin who uh, knows the cheat code to the Rufus Cube so he can do it in under 30 seconds. It oh, always, wow. it always makes me disgusted. I'm like, I do not know this, but um, I, you said something um, that I wanted to pull out was the fact that you are helping other people mm-hmm. is what this work is about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not one time did you really mention yourself, um, but that you were helping other people be seen and heard. Um, I think that again, I feel like this is the episode where we're going to call it the mindset of an advocate. Um, And that mindset of you are, this work is to help people be seen and heard. And it's not about you. It it really is about the people you're helping to serve. And so 
we have to be aware of that, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, we do, we do. That that's that's what's going to be sustaining for us. That's what's going to be the best part. That's where the magic happens when we get to help people. Uh, you know, give resources. And those people are often our students, right? The joy that we will have as educators, as parents, as, you know, supporters, the joy that we will have when we know that students are getting access to music education. That's that's the beautiful part. Um, Your mindset, James. (laughs) I was going to, I mean, this conversation was about federal funding, but honestly, it's about the mindset that we have to have going into this work of advocacy, because it might not be federal funding. It might just be, you know, Penny, we see music as a viable space for children to learn academically, right? Because there's going to be spaces in where, oh, yeah, okay, music is great, but let's focus on this. Let's focus on that. And I think acknowledging that our mindset and our focus, our reason for doing this work is because we know that it has a positive impact on our students' lives. Absolutely. That's what we we focus on. Um, That just made me happy the way you said that, to see the joy on their faces and to recognize that, you know, you also get to hear their lament, like the hard stuff too. Mm-hmm. That that allows them to be a fuller person, and not just be like, "Well, I'm going to complain," but you also get the the good sides. Says, "Oh, I'm going to celebrate." Uh, yeah. So I got a question for you. Yeah, go for it. Um, ah! You you know that the listeners of this podcast might not know that you and I have worked back to back, and NCMA is presidents, and we've known each other quite a while now. Um, yeah. Yes. Um, your term of office president and NCMEA followed mine. Yes. And we probably collaborate and brainstorm as much now as we did then, even though you are now not in the classroom and you have a, a very significant role in Athens, the state advocacy engagement manager. Um, <laughs> but every time we present together on federal funds or advocacy or something like that, uh, I, I think we both grow and, and learn from each other. Uh, my question to you uh, that I'd be curious to see how you'd share with the audience or the listeners to the podcast is at what point did you make the transition in your mind to a place of confidence as a music advocate or for federal funds or just an advocate in general? And what do you know now about advocacy that you didn't think you realized when you were in the classroom? Oh, friend. Um, wow. <laughs> that's a loaded question that's loaded questions okay well um, funny you talked about mindset here I think this ties into that that really well so um <laughs> I had no idea you were going to go down that path but yeah so I'm curious so the first thing is uh when uh in your mind did you make the transition to a place of confidence about being an advocate wow I appreciate that you think I'm confident that this work. Well, a lot um, of people do. You probably wouldn't have the job you have, but yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. I think. Um, am I confident in my advocacy? I would not say confident. I've always been. Uh, I lean toward more so humble and just keeping focus on the task ahead. Uh, you know, ahead. And I, 
I, I think the reason why you and I work so well together uh, is because we kind of operate on the same space of, you know, we do this for the people. We do this with the people in mind. And so I'm going to do and work my hardest to make sure that I'm advocating for my students, that I'm advocating for educators, um, and that I'm doing the best at it, right? Like, I, I think that that's where, I guess you could say that's confidence. I'm going to be confident in the fact that I will work as hard as I possibly can to, to advocate for music education, our students, our teachers, their families, their communities. Like, that's where my confidence is, is knowing. I'm going to work hard. Um, well, I know what it is. It is because you listen to understand and mm. you take notes. You don't listen to talk. Amen. Yes. Yes. I, I definitely. Um, I also would say I, I surround myself with people whose voices may or may not have been heard before. In mm, a way. That's a great point. Yeah. Right. Like. Wow. Yeah. That's powerful. And that, I, yeah, definitely. And yeah, ironically that you said that because when I first started this job, the people that I saw the most were art teachers and PE teachers, especially PE teachers. Oh. Lord, I, I didn't know anything about PE, but that was a part of my job, you know, so I, I had to go learn what happens in a PE classroom. And I only work with elementary PE teachers, not K-12, K-5, but, you know, I was like, well, what do I talk to them about? So I shared with some of them, I like to run, <laughs> you know. <laughs> But but I mean that first thing about sharing something I do is like, oh yeah, well making that connection. Yeah, making building the relationship. Anyway, I didn't mean to turn that back. No, yeah. But I I I appreciate that you say it's it you see recognize it as confidence because I wouldn't recognize it as confidence. Again, I, I probably lean more on the I'm more humble and focused at the job. I'm committed to it. But I knew I wanted to do this work after my presidency was like coming to an end. Mm -hmm. um, I knew I wanted to continue to teach teachers and anyone really to be advocates, to, to find ways for their voices to be heard in our society. I knew that, you know, everybody should have the opportunity to share what their needs are. And then for, you know, the system that we live in in education for it, for those needs to be met. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And the work that I did with you, the work that I did with NAFME and learning about federal funds and how we as educators can advocate. Um, I just wanted more people to know. I want more teachers to know that their voices and the needs of their students and their communities can and should be heard. And here's how we do it. Here's how you build relationships to bring about positive change for the people that you see every single day, right? That's that's why I love what I do. Yeah. Um, I, I'm guessing to paraphrase you, what you know is by volunteering to serve mm -hmm. in a service role in leading in music, that's when it really changed that you you knew more about advocacy through that volunteer service. Oh yeah. That's where I learned about it. Right. Like it was yeah. a, I will say my service to North Carolina's MEA 
was where I learned all about advocacy. And I'll also, I'll, I'll give a shout out to Nate Magaki for Arts North Carolina mm-hmm. and those advocacy days and learning about advocacy there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where I learned about advocacy is just practicing it, right? Right. Um, hosting things or being on a committee or something yeah. it's all that volunteer work and that's where you learn the the real stuff so yeah um, and and I would I want to encourage um anyone who is listening you don't have to have a certain title to get involved in this work no uh, you said it no, earlier the work that you've gotten into by volunteering and learning on the job um that's over time. You don't wake up and become an advocate. It mm-hmm. is continual practice. And again, I really think that even though we're going to focus on federal funds, it's really, we're talking about the mindset of an advocate is over time, you've learned to build relationships. Over time, you've learned how to ask questions. Over time, you've learned how to do this research and how to face obstacles and how to you know move around obstacles how to shift your focus from obstacles how to learn from other people uh to do this work and all of a sudden you're looking around and you do become confident in the work that you're doing because you're confident in your dedication and mission and focus of advocating for the needs of your students and their communities Mm. um yeah so that's that's <laughs> that's kind of where I'm coming from to answer your question. Uh, that was a beautiful question. Thanks for <laughs> thanks for asking that question. Um, the last thing I want to tell the audience is, you know, it is possible for you to be an educator and an advocate at the same time, and to be gentle with yourself while you're doing this. It is a learning process. We didn't go to school for most of us <laughs> didn't go to school for to learn how to be an advocate. And, you know, give yourself time before you start reflecting on your growth. Allow yourself to make mistakes, allow yourself to get some no's and allow yourself to focus on the beautiful parts. Maybe you're asking for funding and you move from $100 to $200. Maybe you are trying to write a proposal and, you know, you get a thought partner instead of doing it by yourself. Um, those are all valid things in this process of becoming an advocate. So uh, it has really been good to talk to you today about this mindset of an advocate. Thank you for sharing your stories about music education advocacy. And, and to our listeners, if you enjoyed this episode or you would like to hear more about federal funding or maybe even the mindset of an advocate, feel free to send us a message um, and let us know on the Amplify um, platform or however you get your podcast. And all right, y'all, let's go make some music and see where we go from here. Bye. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening.